Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. We're heading into Christmas. We got that awkward situation. What do we do about it? Well, let's talk about it now. So it's around this time of year that church offices fill with people and counselor offices fill with people all asking the same question. How am I going to deal with so-and-so this year? How am I going to deal with the situation that we got going on in the house or in the family? Like mom and dad just separated last year. Whose house do I go to? What, what do we do with that? How's that going to work? Uh, different sides of the family want us on a different day. Like my family wants us on this day, but the in-laws want us on that day. How, how do we choose without hurting feelings? Or creepy Uncle Al is coming this year. What, what do I do about him? Mother-in-law always undermines the wife. Aunt Sally's always running her mouth. Sister-in-law wants proof of everyone's vaccination before she walks into the house. But my brother-in-law, you know he's going to come in with his soapbox and his government conspiracy t-shirt. Did I just describe some families in here? (laughs) I think it's time we talk about the awkward. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Capernaum, it's on the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee. It's a day's hike from where he grew up in Nazareth. It's just northeast, down the hills, about 40 miles. Capernaum is just a tiny, little, insignificant fishing village right on the sea. Tiny and insignificant, yet this is the stage for much of Jesus' ministry. One block from the harbor sits this little home. It's tucked away in between two other homes. Yet it's this little home that has become the centerpiece for the village as of late. A crowd tends to grow there each day. First, it was just a crowd, a small crowd of locals, and then it was a larger crowd of locals. Soon, people from the neighboring Magdala showed up, and then Tiberius people came, and then, and then from Bethany people came, and they started hanging out just outside of this tiny little insignificant house. See, it's a small town. And if you know, if you're from a small town, you know this. It's hard to hide in a small town. Everybody knows this little house is where Jesus tends to stay. But at the moment, Jesus is not in the house. Instead, he's down the block just past the harbor, up on the hillside, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He's walking with his new disciples. He's just got a few disciples at this point, young guys, fishermen. And that's what catches everybody by surprise. Nobody understands it. Fishermen. Rabbis always had a sharp entourage, A-plus students with soft hands and smooth faces, sweater vest, Ryan Gosling kind of guys. Yet Jesus took guys that smelled like fish, calloused hands, and sun-beaten, scruffy faces. It's the talk of the town. It's almost a joke. Because Jesus' popularity exceeds that of any sort of rabbi, recent rabbi. Like, Jesus could have the best of the best. Jesus should have the best of the best. Yet so far... It's those scruffy fishermen that follow him around. And today, Jesus will add to his crew, and it's about to get awkward. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 2 says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. He passed by, and he saw Levi. And Throughout the Bible, he's more known as Matthew. We know him as Matthew. Matthew wrote a book of the Bible. Matthew, sitting at a tax booth, And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And this right here is where most first century readers reading this would have closed their books and said, no, I'm not finishing this. I'm not, I'm not reading this. I'm done. This is scandalous. It's this interaction right here that lost Jesus a considerable amount of followers. Jesus knew this would plummet his approval ratings. No doubt men and women in Capernaum walked home fuming after what they just saw. You don't do this. You don't approach this guy. You don't associate with this guy. You certainly don't invite this guy into your circle. And the reason is, Matthew works for the government, the IRS to be specific. But it's so much worse than that. In order to get how awkward this is, we've we got to take a trip back to Capernaum and really understand the, the socioeconomics of, of what's going on here. So for all of you who've been like writing me emails and writing on your cards, when, when are we going to hear about Roman taxation? This is it, okay? I like a stack of emails about zero that are asking for this, but this is really important to understand the, the context of what's going on. When you're conquered by another government, they set up their taxes and their laws and their law enforcement. Even though millennials don't like this idea, this is just how it always has been and how it always will be until Jesus comes back and come Lord Jesus. But at this time in history, the Roman Empire has taken over and the Roman Empire is absolutely ginormous. There's so much land, so many regions, so many different people groups, so many different languages, so many different dialects. And there's just no way for Rome to go around door to door and collect their taxes. And so what Rome does is they get very, very creative. They decide, we're going to get your people to get your money to us. Let me illustrate it this way. Canada has invaded us. I know, I went there. The Mounties have mounted up. They came and they took us over, and now maple leaf flags are not just flying in our ice arenas. They are everywhere. We are now under Canada's rule, A. <laughs> Problem is, is Canada, Canada doesn't, doesn't have the manpower to get us to pay taxes because we're Americans. And so Canada looks at a map of our nation, looks at all of the counties, and they decide how much money they're going to extract from each county. So they look at our county. We're in Cook County right now. They look at the wealth, and they come up with a number for each county. So they look at Cook County, and they go, let's put a number out there, $50 million. Cook County owes us $50 million. So instead of the politicians pocketing the money, Canada now gets the money. And so Canada puts this number out to bid. We want 50 million from Cook County. And the wealthy in our county would bid to collect this money. Well, I'll collect 51 million for you. I'll collect 53 million for you. I'll collect 55 million. I'll collect 61 million for you. I'll collect 67 million. Now we're all at home watching this go down. And we're going, whoa, 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 whoa. It was 50 million. And someone bid this up to 67 million. What a sellout. We only had 50 million, we only owed 50 million, and now one of our own, in order to make money, is going to get us to pay more. And it wasn't a Canadian who did this. It was the wealthy people in our county who did this. The people on the North Shore are working with Canada to get our money. Because as soon as the auction ends, Canada gets their money right away. So you and I, we can't bid at this auction. Only someone who has $67 million in their pocket and can give it to Canada right away can bid. And so some wealthy guy... And the North Shore gives Canada $67 million, and Canada gives him a bunch of Mounties in order to collect the money from us. 
And any extra that he collects, he keeps. So he's not really collecting 67 million. He's now collecting 71 million. It was 50 million, and now it's 71 million. So, okay, not only did he bid our taxes up, but now he's using foreign soldiers to get us to pay up, and he's collecting more in order to put additions on his house and live even better. This guy betrayed us. He bid us up. He's stealing from us. He's collecting 71 million when it was 50 million, and he's using the enemy to bully all of us out of our money. We would hate this guy. This guy is scum. This is Matthew. He's of Jewish descent. He grew up a Jewish boy with Jewish friends, but he's no longer considered a Jew by his people. He's a traitor, extorting and oppressing his own people with the help of foreign soldiers. Matthew is hated, he's ostracized, he's excommunicated, and I don't know about you, totally get it. Totally get it. It was seen as patriotic to make Matthew's job hard. Tax evasion was almost respected. Man, if you can bootleg your business somehow and evade this guy, like, man, I respect, I salute you. So there he is in verse 14. He's sitting at his booth. He's collecting his dirty money. He's getting richer as the locals are living hand to mouth. And what does it say? Look at the verbiage. It says, Jesus sees him and he walks toward the booth. And you know everybody watching is excited. Because after all, Jesus is Jewish. Jesus loves Israel. Jesus loves the people. Jesus' own family would have been oppressed by these tax collectors. So this is going to be good. Here we go. Following him to the booth. Hey, Levi. Chatter stops. Dead silence. Follow me. And gasps would have broken out all around the crowd. Follow me. Those are two words every Jewish boy wanted to hear. And the only boys who ever really heard that were the A-plus students, loyal to their people, loyal to the Torah, the sweater vest, Ryan Gosling, nice boys. And Jesus has the nerve to say to this sellout, this traitor, this scum, Matthew's not even following the Torah, Jesus. Matthew's following the money. So many parts of Jesus fascinate me. We, we live in a day and age where, where people will do whatever they can to build their platform, you know, gain followers, get more likes, uh, grow, grow their audience, which, which is understandable. It's just how the world works now. It's, it's how you get followers. It's how you get books out there. It's how you get a product out there. It's just, it is how it is. Though some go really extreme, even pastors. Pastors can be really guilty of this. They'll like build their audience. And so, you know, I'm just going to say whatever to appease the majority, say whatever I can say to, to get more followers. I'm afraid of losing my platform. Personally, I don't trust anyone like that. It's all about their platform. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, his platform grew. He knew how to grow his platform. He was very smart. He could spread word to cities that he was coming to town. He knew how to grow a crowd. Some of what he did is just, I know you don't want to hear this, but it's just true. It's just like brilliant, genius promotion. He even used like reverse psychology. Just what he did to grow a crowd was, was incredible. But he was never afraid to lose that crowd. He's never afraid to lose his platform. And this happened quite a bit, and it's happening right here in this text. His follower numbers on his social media just plummeted. He just made things around town incredibly awkward. Bloggers are hating on this guy. Investigative journalists are giddy with excitement about what they get to do to Jesus now. Meanwhile, Matthew gathers his things, files his scrolls, closes down his booth, and he walks over next to the disciples who are standing there trying not to punch Matthew in the mouth. Because remember, remember where we're at. We're still in Capernaum. 
these fishermen that are following Jesus are from Capernaum. Matthew is from Capernaum. Who were these fishermen's tax collector? It's Matthew. And fishing wasn't a tax-exempt enterprise. Jesus' disciples grew up having to pay taxes on everything they caught, everything they sold. Many of these disciples, for the last decade, have been trying to evade Matthew. And fishermen are like, they're like moonshiners during this time. They're running routes at night. They're, they're selling behind the market to escape the taxes. Matthew, using his Roman soldiers, are always trying to sniff them out. Like, you know they had confrontations before. Matthew's probably given orders to the Roman soldiers to follow John around or, or to intimidate Peter. Like, Peter and John probably had names, nicknames for Matthew. And yesterday, they felt proud walking around town with, with Jesus. Today, they just feel dirty walking next to this guy. This isn't as fun anymore. This is awkward. All right, Junior, where are you going with this? How does this help me and my family gatherings this Christmas? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. You're going to hate. You're going to hate the answer. But this is just reality. What did Jesus do here? What, what is Jesus doing here? He's doing exactly what you need to do with your gatherings this season. You're going to hate me, but we're going here anyways. To embrace the awkward, this Christmas, you walk toward the awkward. Walk toward the awkward. You go back to verse 14. Jesus says, Matthew, text says, look at the verbiage. He says, walked toward him. He sees him, he walks toward him. And the reality is we all have a Matthew somewhere in our life. They're either in our family, they're in our extended family, they're in our office, they're an acquaintance, they're a neighbor, but somewhere you have a Matthew. This is in our Bibles because there's a situation in your life just like this. You have a Matthew in your life. Oh, he's not a national traitor, but, but, but they betrayed you. They betrayed your trust. They did that or they do that. It's just always awkward around them. Their political ideology is infuriating. They went behind your back. They get attention at your expense. Their talk is just off-putting. They, they, they compete with you. They're so shallow. They're, they're very manipulative. They're annoying. They're inconsiderate. They're loud. They're opinionated. They're weird. And so your response, and I get it, your response is naturally, well, I'm just going to do what the disciples did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evade them. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to stay away from them. I'm going to stay in the other room. I'm going to try to not cross paths with them. I'm going to do as minimal talking with them as possible. I'm just going to try to survive the awkwardness this Christmas. And Jesus is saying, nah, suck it up, get in there, and walk toward it. Why? Because nobody has ever made a difference avoiding awkward, avoiding that person. You weren't put here on this earth to spend your life just avoiding. Growing up, there was a kid who would periodically come to my youth group. His name was Jesse. His parents didn't come to church. And he didn't come to church, but he'd come to youth group during the week. And he was awkward. He was like the, the, the greasy kind of guy, would say off-the-wall stuff. And, uh, and once in a while, he'd pick, he'd pick on me to get in good with the other like, older guys in our youth group. He was just off-putting, and so, so I would naturally do you know, what I could. I'd just stay away from him. I'd sit on the other side of the room, and, and I remember hating it when we'd pull into church you know, in the family car, and I'd see Jesse out in the parking lot. I'd be like, dang it, Jesse's here. One day I was at my uh, friend's house, and, and my friend said to me, he said, uh, Junior, let's go down the block and let's hang out at Jesse's house. I was like, no, well, why? Jesse's annoying, awkward. And he, he said, well, Jesse needs a friend. I'm like, all right, fine, if you're going like, to guilt me into it. So we go over to Jesse's house. We're sitting around, and I'm just trying to survive the awkwardness until we can go home, you know, counting down the seconds till we can leave. 
That is until uh, Jesse's dad stumbled into the house uh, drunk. It's like the middle of the day. And as soon as his dad stumbled in the house, I, I noticed Jesse's face change, just like turn bright red. It was like this face of like both like embarrassment, but also like terror. Then I hear his mom in the kitchen pleading with his dad to, to leave. And Jesse just gets up and he runs into his room. So I'm sitting there, it's like even, even more awkward now. You know, I'm sitting there in the living room, Jesse's in his room, mom and dad are sitting there fighting. And then the dad went into the other room into Jesse's room and just started wailing on Jesse. At least that's what it sounded like. I mean, just like a sound I wish I could just erase from my memory, but you know, yelling and crying and, and hitting and things being thrown. And so I'm hearing this and I just, I run out of the house. And I remember getting like a block away, I'm still running. And I remember thinking, I could run, but Jesse couldn't run. And suddenly Jesse made more sense to me. Like his awkwardness, his greasy exterior, his, his craving to be accepted. That was the last time I saw Jesse. He never came back to church, probably out of embarrassment. And he moved not too long after that. Was, I, I think back to it, just like a big regret of mine. Like I wish that I could have seen past his awkwardness. I wish that I would have done what Jesus did and walked toward it. Because I could have made a difference in his life. Like God put me in his life for that reason. Instead, I just did what the disciples did. I just evaded and, and, and avoided and was annoyed by him. This is what Jesus is communicating here. There's a Matthew in your life, and regardless of what they've done, regardless of how they talk, regardless of how awkward it is, regardless of how much they hurt you, they are still made in the image of God. They are still loved by God. They are still wanted by God. They are still pursued by God. And we just don't get a pass when it comes to this. Following Jesus means following his footsteps, and his footsteps go to the awkward. Our church staff has what we call staff values. You probably have them at your business. I think most businesses have them. They just never follow them, but we actually follow them. We talk about them a lot in our staff meetings, and we actually take these staff values so seriously that um, each staff, when, when somebody's hired, they like get it framed, these staff values, and they either have to hang on their wall or put it on their desk or somewhere in their office. In fact, here's, here's my staff values sitting on, uh, on my shelf. And we, again, we repeat these. Like in staff meeting, we'll like take tests and test each other, test each other on these. But one of these staff values is walk toward the mess. Because we believe that our responsibility as Christians is to walk toward the messes. And so as a staff, we talk through this all the time. If, if there's an issue, if someone's got a problem, if there's some tension, we don't like run from that. We, we walk toward it. So, for example, this happens quite a bit, actually. Um, someone will come into our church, alcohol on their breath, looks like they slept in a ditch and combed their hair with a wrench. That's the type of person, you know, you, you want to avoid. In fact, I, I ran into one of these guys last year, tried picking a fight, just completely bonkers. Most time, you know, we want to avoid that person, but no, we, we walk toward them and, and we do what's, what's best for them. Or if there's a family going through some awkward, messy family drama, again, this happens all the time. Like an affair or gender identity confusion. We don't avoid it. We walk toward that mess. And we get it, this directly from Scripture. Jesus does it here. But, but Scripture is filled with this idea. You think about Scripture. Like the Good Samaritan, as he's walking down the road, what does he do? He walks toward the messy guy on the road, the bleeding guy. Moses walks toward Egypt. That's awkward. He ran from Egypt for his life. Now he's going back to his, own, his old home right back into a political mess. 
David walked toward the battlefield where Goliath stood. That's just an awkward scene. Those two stand there on the battlefield. Jesus walks toward the woman at the well. Everyone's avoiding the woman at the well. Jesus walks right up to her and strikes up a conversation. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, Luke writes that when Jesus knew his time had come, he headed toward, he headed toward Jerusalem and he led the pack. He was out in front, walking quickly toward Jerusalem, walking toward the cross. I mean, over and over and over and over, Scripture repeats this as a theme. We walk toward the mess because that's what God did with us. He came to us, to our mess. And so we do it for other people. And the truth is, there are messes all around you. But how many of us, we spend our energy and we spend our focus just trying to avoid them? Wow, that family is so awkward. The in-laws are so awkward. Let's just get in and get out. Let's like show up late and get out early. And try to stay in the other room. Don't talk for too long. Or how many of us, we think, ah, that's a sore subject with my spouse. So instead of having the tough conversation that needs to happen or getting counseling, I'm just going to dance around it and eh, hope for the best on this one. Or my kid just got into that. I, I saw it on the history of their phone. That's eh, an awkward conversation. I'm just going to act like I didn't know, like I, don't, I didn't see it. Or my coworker has been really ornery and, and short-fused. And instead of seeing how they're doing and, and having an awkward conversation about, can we have a different culture here? I'm just going to avoid it and then complain about it. That is not following Jesus because Jesus goes right into the awkward, right into the mess. He knows that making a difference involves dealing with awkward. You want to make a difference in this life? You want to make a difference with your life? You want to make a difference in your family and with your friends? It's going to involve dealing with awkward. Like when I think of, of people who make a difference, good leaders, leaders of their families, leaders of their business, good small group leaders, they don't mind awkward because that's where the difference is made. One of my favorite things to do is make fun of my dad because he can just make things so awkward. It's, it's awesome. I was making fun of him this past week for, for just how awkward he can make things sometimes. But that's actually what makes him a good leader because he doesn't mind dealing with the awkward. Whatever, we're going to have that conversation. Yeah, it's awkward, but that's the conversation that needs to happen. Good leaders walk toward the awkward. They have those conversations. They're strong, but they're gentle, and they deal with the awkward situation. That's what Jesus is modeling here. If we're going to have good families, we're going to walk toward the awkward. If we're going to be a good leader, we're going to walk toward the awkward. If we're going to make a difference in this world, we got to be a people who walk right toward the mess. Stop spending so much money or so much time dancing around it and avoiding it, sweeping under the rug. No, no, no. Buck up, get in there. Have the difficult conversation, sit with that awkward person, love them, make a difference. So Jesus calls a traitor, but it gets worse. Look at verse 15. I'll pop it up here on the screen. It says, and he reclined at a table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. All right, Jesus, you've already gone too far by calling this guy, but this is ridiculous. I mean, come on. But put yourself in this, in this story. It's one of the fancier houses in Capernaum. It's a tax collector's house. It's, it's bigger, it, it, it's, it's, it's fancier, it's well-protected because it just has to be. 
The disciples are sitting there dumbfounded. They're annoyed. They don't want to be here. Just feel seedy here. Like the wall torches, they, they light up the house's opulence, the, the paintings on the wall. Even the floor is art. Like the ornate mosaic tiles, they walk on the imported rugs. They just look on in disgust. How much of their family's money went into all this? They sit at a large table eating off dinnerware that they've only ever seen in fancy shops. And the food, the amount of it, the, the, the quality of it, the quantity of it. Just being here, eating this food. They're just counting down the seconds so they can get out of this. What's worse, though, is they're surrounded by them. The whole table is scum. These traitors. And, and these people who just have a reputation for being sinners. And they're just stuffing their faces with food. And yet Jesus came over here. Not only did he walk up to Matthew, he came over here to hang out, and he's listening to these guys. He's entered their world, and it's giving us point number two. You walk toward the awkward. If you're going to follow Jesus, you take an interest in them. You walk toward that person, you're going to take an interest in them. Christmas parties are so fun to observe, aren't they? Like, whether it's a family Christmas party or an office Christmas party or a friend's Christmas party, like, gatherings are funny because they turn into these, uh, these weird competitions, you know? Like, most people on their way to their gathering, they're, they're hoping, we're like, we're all hoping to impress, right? Come on, it's reality. It's why we dress nicer. It's why we kind of worry about, you know, what we're making. We want to impress. We want to make a good impression. And some of that is fine, right? It's natural. Like, whatever. We should want to be presentable, says Mr. Presentable. <laughs> but what happens, though is these gatherings, they go from wanting to be presentable to turning into these like really funny competitions where everyone's trying to impress everyone. Even when you're like listening to someone talk, how many of us have we ever thought like, okay, without being too obvious, how do I steer this conversation to talk about something that I've done or something impressive that I'm doing this year? And when we go, we want to avoid certain people and we want other people to take an interest in us. It's human nature. Jesus completely flips that. Instead of the right people taking an interest in you, you go find the person you're avoiding and you take an interest in them. It's how you make a difference. It's how you follow Jesus. And side note, let me just talk to the awkward people here for a second. Right? There's some of us in this room who are more awkward. Right? And don't really feel like you ever fit in. You feel out of place at social settings. I know we have them in this room because I am one of them. I was told seven times by, this past week by different coworkers that I'm just awkward. And I can be. It's probably because who raised me. But, but growing up, just to shoot straight with you, growing up, there were more than a few settings. I just, I so badly wanted to be accepted because I never felt accepted with my friends. Really craved good friends. Really craved it. So much so, I would just turn people off. If I had like a potential friend, I, I wanted their approval so bad, I would just try to impress them and get them interested in me. It never worked. I've come to find, those of you who are awkward, like me, I've come to find that we might always be awkward. There might not be anything we can do about that. But the best awkward is taking an interest in other people type of awkward. Because the most exhausting type of people are awkward people who desperately want others to take an interest in them. Trying so hard. And I know that because I've been one of them. Guilty of it. Now you go find the avoided person and you take an interest in them. Every morning that my dad dropped me off for school, it was like clockwork. Every single time he dropped me off for school, I'd open the door, I'd grab my backpack, and he'd always say the same line. You go find someone who needs a friend today. Go find someone who needs a friend today. 
Because that's what following Jesus looks like. This is why I think that followers of Jesus should be the ones everyone wants to be around. We should be the people everybody wants to be around. Because we take an interest in other people. We listen. We ask the questions. One of my goals, I actually got this from Brian. One of my goals when I share a meal with someone, gosh, I don't know if I should tell you this. I'm just like letting you in my secrets, but whatever. <laughs> We're family. When I eat with someone, I want to be done with my meal first. Now, it's not like I'm scarfing down my food. I'm not that awkward. I just, I want to finish my food before they do, because if I do, it means my mouth is doing more chewing than talking, which means I was doing more listening than talking. This kind of thing has to be on our radar. Majority of us, come on, we're just bad at this. If I can get people interested in me, Jesus says, nah. You walk toward the people, you get in their world, and you take an interest in them. This is the gospel. We reflect the gospel in how we have conversations even. The gospel is God walked toward us, got into our world, sacrificed for us. And we mirror that. We walk toward the avoided people. We sacrifice. We take an interest in them. We mirror the gospel just in how we have conversations. Verse 16. Continues, says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is so middle school cafeteria, isn't it? Why are you eating with them? That is not the cool kid table. Why'd you sit here? You should be over there. You're with the sinners. You can tell I've mocked people before in middle school. This is quintessential. Self-righteous people. Always wondering, why are you hanging out with him? Oh, who's in the picture with who? Does she hang out with her? Who's posting with who? Who'd you tag in this? It's like a big deal to our society. We, like, we live and die by that. Like if I post with these people, you know, I'm not with these people. i got to have these people in my group, not, not these people. Because for many of us who were around, for some reason, it's sick, but it's true. Who were around, it's like it determines our status. It's disgusting, but that's our operating system. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees are acting like this. Why are you hanging out with these guys, Jesus? They've been excommunicated from Judaism, and we know this because we were the ones who excommunicated them. They've hurt us. This only shrinks your platform. Jesus, this is really stupid. This only lowers your status. This is something that we must absolutely reject because Jesus did. Jesus is very intentional here. He's going after that shallow, clicky nature in us. Like when we arrive at a party, when we arrive at the family party, we're looking for so-and-so, we're looking to stay away from so-and-so, and Jesus says, screw that. I'm walking toward the guy who you all want to avoid, and I'm going to go to his house, and I'm going to take an interest in him, and I'm going to go into his world. And the self-righteous people, of course, have a problem with this. But look what Jesus says to him. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I imagine when Jesus said this, the, the table of tax collectors stopped eating, and they're like, hey, did he just call us six sinners? Way to make it even more awkward, Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm here for more. I'm here for more than my, my image. I'm here for more than finding my little clique. I'm here for more than getting people interested in me, and I'm here for more than hanging out with people who better my status. I'm here to make a difference. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the messes. It's my mission. And if we say we follow Jesus, we do the same. And all this Jesus is saying, number three, adopt a bigger mission. Adopt a bigger mission. 
How many of our missions going into this Christmas, and I know this because I've talked with you and it's been my mission, just want to survive this Christmas. I just want to get past the party. I just want to get past having to host all these people. How many of us, as we walk into family gatherings or staff gatherings or group gatherings, our mission is like, I got to get people interested in me. I got to get people to see what I've done this year. And Jesus is asking you, can you just surrender those missions? Surrender those missions. They'll drive you mad, and they have been. Instead, Jesus is offering you a different Christmas this year. You're following me, so you're going to do more than just survive. You're following me, so you're going to do something bigger than impress others. You're going to make a difference in their lives. You're going to embrace a bigger mission. Those people you want to avoid, those situations, those conversations, that awkwardness, you see those messes as opportunities. Each of those messes is an opportunity for me to make a difference. That's your mission now. You're the family member. You're the coworker. You're the friend. You're the churchgoer who breaks that pattern, the pattern of avoiding that person, that pattern of I want to impress those people, that, that pattern of I got to be with like, like cookie cutter, you know, clicky, you know, sweater vest people. You're the one who breaks away from all of that. And you walk toward the situation. You take an interest in the person. And you show them Jesus. That's what he did. That's where he went. That's what he does. It's following Jesus. I got to tell you one of my favorite stories. It's about a guy named uh, Woody Hayes. You ever hear this guy? He, yeah. I guess people don't like Ohio State here. He died five days before I was born. So he was the coach of Ohio State, uh, known to be a fiery guy, right? Very charismatic type of guy. He had a little bit of Bobby Knight in him. That's actually what got him fired. You go back to the Gator Bowl, 1978. Ohio State versus Clemson. With less than five minutes left on the clock, Ohio State was, was trailing 17-15. They're down two, but they had the ball with an opportunity to score. Unfortunately, the, the quarterback, after marching down the field, the quarterback threw an interception to the defensive nose tackle. The defensive nose tackle, now the hero of the Gator Bowl, just won the game, ran out of bounds near the opposing coach, Woody Hayes. And Woody Hayes came barreling over and basically throat punched the guy. He kept punching him. Big scuffle ensued. His own players are holding their coach back from throwing more punches. And Ohio State walked into their locker room visibly upset, not so much by the loss, but by how their leader handled the situation. It was a disgraced school, thanks to the coach. And the coach was immediately fired. In fact, he didn't even show, he didn't even seem very apologetic. So, of course, the, the media jumped on this, right? The media has a, has a field day with this, investigative reporting on how toxic Woody Hayes was. This is when, you know, people come out of the woodwork, former players come out of the woodwork and they're being interviewed. Oh, he's just so mean. He was always so bad, you know, to get their 15 seconds of fame. And so the disgraced Woody Hayes really had no other choice but to retreat out of the spotlight, seclude himself. And the Hayes family name was set to live in infamy. And that is until Coach Tom Landry got involved. Coach Tom Landry was a coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He's a beloved coach, very committed Christian. He was on the board of Dallas Theological Seminary, polar opposite of Woody Hayes, polar opposite. So Woody was fiery, charismatic, had a temper. That was not Coach Landry. In fact, I talked to the guy last night who played tennis with Coach Landry. He said, Coach Landry's the kind of guy who didn't say much, but when he did say something, you listened because it weighed, it weighed a lot. 
Coach Landry was very chill. He was even keeled, and he was hard to rattle. At the end of that same football season, Coach Landry was invited to a big prestigious banquet with other successful coaches and well-known athletes and sports figures. Very bougie event, very classy event. Big thing to get invited to. Normally, Landry would appear at the banquet with his wife, just like everyone else who attended the event. But this time, Tom Landry didn't show up with his wife. Instead, Tom Landry walked in the door with none other than the disgraced Woody Hayes. The looks he got, the silence that fell on the room as they walked in, Tom Landry made that banquet awkward. A lot of people had a lot of things to say, and then later when Tom Landry was asked why he did what he did, Landry said this, and I love it. He said, well, I figured since everyone was beating up on Woody, someone needed to show him something different. Of course, everybody had an opinion. Reporters are attacking Landry for his lack of judgment. Surely a coach should be a better decision maker than this, to align yourself with this guy. Landry's public image that year took a hit. Yet still, Tom Landry's friendship with Woody Hayes lifted him out of his shame and silenced his tormentors. It was extremely awkward, but it was awkward redemption. Sounds a bit like what Jesus did for Matthew, doesn't it? Sounds a bit like what Jesus does for us. And Jesus now says to us, you go do that for others. The truth is, you got that Woody Hayes family member. You have that Woody Hayes coworker. You have that Woody Hayes acquaintance. And they are difficult and they are selfish and their reputation is deserved. You walk toward that mess. You take an interest in them, and you adopt a bigger mission. I am not here to avoid that person. I am here to follow Jesus' footsteps into the awkward and bring about redemption because someone did that for me. That's what we do this Christmas. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.